Lord, we thank you for my brothers and my sisters. We thank you for this church. The church is a gathering of people who are saved, who are fellow citizens of the kingdom of God. And it is a wonderful, wonderful thing to come to worship. And it is a great, powerful thing to listen to your word. We pray, Lord, that we confess that we have become citizens of your kingdom because of your word, through your word. We pray that that kingdom expansion will continue here this morning. Uh, We pray that may you give us a clear understanding of what it means to be your child. And may the thing that we talk about, specifically being poor in spirit, give us true joy and true clear understanding of our place in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And so, um, yesterday we had that, uh, we had that, uh, what did we have yesterday? The church seminar, right? And, you know, I came fashionably late, as always, because I go to sleep really late. I went to bed at like 3.30 on, on Saturday night. Um, and so I kind of came, came like five minutes late. So I had to sit in the back, right? And so I was looking at Pastor Paul and him talking, and I was looking at you guys from the back. You know what? I really love you guys. That's the realization I had yesterday. Man, I really love these people, right? So maybe I'm going through midlife crisis or something, but man, right? I really love you guys. And one of the reasons why I love you guys is um, I could see God's work, right, in, in our church. And I think this place is a wonderful testimony of what God does, how God truly saves people. Um, and it was just a great experience I had yesterday. And so that's why we're, what we're studying about is we're studying about the Sermon on the Mount, right? And Sermon on the Mount, as we talked about yesterday, um, last week, is, is Jesus's definition of what a Christian is, right? Um, so I have a pretty good success rate in my cases. I don't want to boast, but, you know, you know I'm good, right? And what makes my cases successful, oftentimes, is I define term pretty clearly. There's a legal definition, and I define it clear, simply and clearly so that the government officials can understand what I'm talking about. Oftentimes, when you simply define the term, it's very persuasive, right? And that's what I do. And I'm, talk, I'm talking about the importance of definition. Because we got to have a very clear definition of what a Christian is. Because so many people go throughout their entire lives thinking that they are, but in fact they're not. This isn't judgy, right? But this is a matter of truth. Peter says, you need to make sure, you need to make your calling sure, which means you got to make sure that you're a Christian. Because people spend their t- lifetime, like I said, thinking that they are, but in actually, actuality they're not. And this is especially important these, this day and age because subjectivity, subjective interpretation is the most important thing, right? People say it's not objective truth that is important, but how I feel about truth that is important. If it doesn't feel right to me, then it cannot be true. That's the definition of culture and the world. And people kind of use that definition in terms of they walk with God as well. If I ask someone, why are you, why are you a Christian? What, what is the definition of a Christian? Why are you a Christian? Oftentimes, people will tell me their experiences about God. Right? They're, they're going to share their experiences about God. Their experience about God is really important. It really is. Right? If you read, I'm reading my, my private devotion. I'm reading 1 John. 
Um, and First John starts out with John saying, I'm writing these things because I have seen it, heard it, and touched the risen Lord. So the whole gospel of John is based on John's experience with the risen Lord. So experience is important, but experience itself does not define our faith. Right? If I say, what is a Christian? Then people, someone told me, you know, God is love. Right? People tell me that all the time. Right? Then I say, what is love? And they go, uh. We use words, but we don't know what they mean. I say God is righteous, and I, people say God is righteous. I say, okay, God, people say God is holy, and I say, then what is holy? They go, oh. We need to have a clear, defined terms of what it means to be a Christian. What it means to be a Christian, according to Jesus' words, is that you are a citizen of the kingdom of God. That's what a Christian is. You are a citizen of the kingdom of God. That's what a Christian, what, that's the meaning of Christian. The question is, what does the citizen of the kingdom of God look like? My wife is going to her naturalization test. So she's like, you know, she's taking that, she's studying. I'm so proud of her, right? I said, what's the longest river in America? And she says, the Mississippi, and I forgot the other, what's the other one? Do you know? Eagle Scott, do you know? The longest river, I'm sorry? I don't think that's it. Anyway, Sean would fail. You know what I mean? So, it's like, so I'm studying. She gives me the Mississippi and something else, right? I, I, we got to, I'll fail it too, right? So to be a U.S. citizen, you need to learn, you need to know a certain thing. You need to satisfy, if you're not born, you got to satisfy certain criteria to be a, to be a U.S. citizen. You, gotta, you either got to be born here, right, which I call the purebloods, or you're going to be naturalized, Right? So there are, there are things that you need to know and there are things that you need to be to be a citizen of the United States. That's like that with every kingdom, right? Despite some people say, let's have open borders, man, right? If you are in a kingdom, there are characteristics, qualities that you have that is different from people in the other kingdom. Sermon on the Mount, specifically the beatitude that we're going to talk about, Matthew chapter verses 3 to verse 11. Jesus describes what his children, what the citizen of his kingdom look like. And they're very different from what we think citizens of the kingdom of God look like. Right? If I would ask you, what does a citizen of the kingdom of God look like? You would tell me, well, we're loved by God. Does it say in the Sermon on the Mount about the love of God? And you're in the Beatitude. Does it say... You are a citizen of the kingdom of God because you're loved by God. Did Jesus explicitly say that? What does it mean to be a citizen of the kingdom of God? Jesus is my best friend. In the Beatitudes, does Jesus say anything about him being your best friend? Let's look at the qualities that Jesus say, what, what, what the citizen of his kingdom look like. So that's what we're going to talk about, the Beatitudes for the next few weeks. Beatitudes. Um, is, is, like I said, Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 to 11. And the Beatitudes, we've got we to have a clear understanding of what they are. They are not attitudes that people, the Christians should have. Right? Often that people confuse that because they say Beatitudes, they think these are the attitudes that Christians should have. That's not what it is. Beatitudes is not Jesus' Jesus's command of what his people, ha- it is not a command that Jesus calls his people to obey. 
Beatitudes are not Jesus' command to his people. They're not. For example, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Question is, how can you become, how can you obey to become poor in spirit? You can't. Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart. How can you obey God to be pure in heart? You can't. The Beatitudes are not Jesus' command that his people need to obey him. That's not what the Beatitudes are. Like I said, Beatitudes are descriptions. Descriptions. What are children of the kingdom of God look like? Specifically, the Beatitudes describe three major things. Number one, the Beatitudes, Jesus describes the qualities of the, the type of people that God consider blessed. The reason why this is called the B attitude is because the word B, the B, which, which it is in Latin, is based on the word beti, BT, I guess, and BT means blessed. So the B attitudes are the nine blessed statements that Jesus is talking about. B attitudes means the qualities of the, of the people that God considered blessed. Do you understand? Beatitudes are the qualities that God himself considers people to be blessed. Right? Understand, everyone? For example, all of us have an understanding what it means to be a, what it, what it means to be a blessed person. Right? All my life, like my family, people have, people have all my life, like until I was a small boy, until re- very recently, people called my family blessed. Right? And you know why people call my family blessed? Especially Christians. Christians call our family blessed. And the only reason why they called my family blessed is because my father and my brothers were super successful. God has given, God has given success to your family. God has made your brother rich. God has made your father powerful. Therefore, God has blessed you. Their definition of blessed, God blessing us, is God making my family super successful. Jesus is saying that is not the definition of what is considered to be blessed. God's definition of a, of a person that is blessed is the Beatitudes. Who are the type of people that God considered blessed? Are they the rich? Are they the powerful? Are they the successful? No. The people that God considered blessed are those who are poor in spirit, are those who are mourning over their sins, are those who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness, are those who are merciful and meek, those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness? These are the people what God looks at, says, these people are blessed. God's definition of a blessed individual is that who is poor in spirit, meek, mourning over sins, hungry and thirsty for his righteousness. When God looks at such a person, he says, that person is blessed. So the Sermon on the Mount shows us what God considered, the type of person that God considered blessed. God considered these people blessed because God approves of these people. When Jesus Jesus says, "Blessed blessed are these people, the word, what Jesus is saying here is, these people are blessed because God approves of these people. The question we ask you is, I ask you is, and we, have, we have in our minds the type of people that God approves of. 
If you have, a, if I ask you, what, 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 what do you think the type of person that God, what is the type of person that you think God approves of? You'll say, pastor? You'll say, I don't know, super Christians who do a lot of Christian stuff? What are the type of people that God, cons- God what, are, what is the type of people that God approves of? Are they the ones who do a lot of stuff for the church? Are they the ones who even preach for a living? Who are those people who are approved by God? It is those who are poor in spirit, those who mourn over their sins, those who are meek, those who are pure in heart, those who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness, those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. These are the people that God approves of. Right? Are you a blessed person in the eyes of God this morning? That's the question, right? Are you the type of person that God approves of this morning? You see, the Sermon of the Beatitudes, it's not a description of of things that people do that make them blessed or approved by God. It is a state of existence. These people in the Beatitudes Right? These qualities of the Beatitudes are the state of existence of people who have been saved. So once again, the Beatitudes reflect the type of people that God considered blessed and the type of people that God approves of. The second thing that the Beatitude reflects is, is the Beatitudes, like I said yesterday, last week, is a reflection of the qualities of Jesus Christ and is a reflection of the people that he has come to save. When Jesus says these quality of the Beatitudes, the poor in spirit, the merciful, the, the pure in heart, lover of righteousness, mourner, mourner over sins, these are the qualities of Jesus Christ himself. And when Jesus Christ saves you, he transforms you into a person like himself. Romans chapter 8, verse 29. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. What is Paul saying? Once again, Paul says in Romans 8, 29, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. What is Paul talking about? Paul is saying here is, God's purpose in predestining your salvation for knowing your salvation. God's purpose of saving you and me, it's not heaven. God's purpose of saving you and me, it's not so that we can go to heaven, but it is so that we will be conformed to his image, so that we will look like him. Jesus Christ is the perfect God, but he's also the perfect man. Jesus Christ is the perfect human being. The purpose of God's salvation is to transform you into a perfect human being. What are the qualities of the perfect human being? The Beatitudes. Poor in spirit, prayer in heart, merciful, meek, hungry, thirst for righteousness. To the point where you will even be persecuted for the sake of all righteousness. These are the qualities of the perfect human being. And if you belong to him, if you have been saved by him, he will make you into such a person. The Beatitudes is not so much a, a command that Jesus tells his people to be, 
but a fruit of what his people become. That's how you know that you're a Christian, you know? When you're starting mourning over your sins more and more. When you become poor in spirit more and more. When you become pure in heart more and more. When you become more merciful. When you become more meek. These are the qualities in which, these are the ways in which you know that Jesus Christ has saved you. These are the ways in which you know that you are being transformed into the perfect human being. This is more, you know. Being a child, of the, being a Christian means more than just simply what, what you do on Sundays, right? It's much deeper and more profound and more revolutionary than what, what, what we think a Christian is. The Beatitudes are the qualities of Jesus Christ and the fruit of our salvation. The Beatitudes, number three, the third thing the Beatitudes are is they are the reflection, the qualities of the, of the people who are in the right relationship with God. Beatitudes is a relative thing. When you, th- these are the qualities in which people start to become when they're before God. This is how you know that you are in the right relationship with God. People who are starting to bear these qualities are those who are in the right relationship with God. When you know God, when you see God, when you are his people, then you'll be poor in spirit. Then you will mourn over your sins. Then you will be more merciful. Then you will be meek. Then you will be kind. You will bear these these qualities, the qualities of people who are in the right relationship with God. People who are in the wrong relationship with God, who don't have a relationship with God, do not bear these qualities. If you are in a wrong, if you don't know God, that you are not poor in spirit, you're rich in pride. We're going to talk about that, what that means later. If you don't have a relationship with God, you are not poor in spirit. You are rich in pride. You think what you think, what you are, is the best. If you are in the wrong relationship with God, you will not mourn over your sins. Because there's nothing to mourn in you. Because you don't think you're a sinner. The only way that you will know that you're a sinner, that you fall below his standard, is to know him. If you don't know him, there's nothing in your mind, there's no sin that you're committing. If you're in the wrong relationship with him, if you don't have a relationship with him, you are not pure in heart. Pure in heart means loyalty to God. If you don't know God, why would you be loyal to him? If you don't know him, you will not hunger and thirst for his righteousness. You will hunger and thirst for your righteousness, for what you think is right. But what he thinks is right will not matter to you. Can you see what this looks like? If you don't know God, these are the qualities. You cannot bear these qualities because God is absent. So the Beatitudes reflect the type of quality of a person who are in the right relationship with God. How do you know that you're in a right relationship with God? Is it you doing your quiet times, praying? Is that the evidence of that you're in a right relationship with God? Not necessarily. Praying and reading the Bible is important, as Pastor Wujin mentioned. But we pray and we read the Bible so we fellowship with God so that by fellowshipping with Him, we will inhabit these qualities. What is the measure of, your, of the fact that you're in a right relationship with God? The Beatitudes. 
If you are not bearing these qualities, you are not in a good relationship with God. Is it harsh today? No, it's right, right? I'm just describing what Jesus is saying. So let's flesh it out. Let's observe what, Jesus, what it means to be poor in spirit. Right? So, once again, Beatitudes are a reflection of the person who are in the right relationship with God. person who knows God. These are the qualities that they bear. The first quality, perhaps one of the most basic important qualities of the Beatitudes, the one attitude that the, all the other attitudes are built on, is the first one. Blessed are the poor in spirit. These, are not, these Beatitudes are not just random things, right? They build on each other. And the most basic Beatitudes that all their attitudes are built on is to be poor in spirit. You need to be poor in spirit in order for you to mourn over your sins. You need to be poor in spirit so, so, so that you will be merciful. You need to be poor in spirit so that you'll be, you'll be hungry, thirsty, and righteousness. The very first quality that Jesus mentioned is the very most, more, most fundamental quality, and that quality is to be poor in spirit. What, is, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Basically, what it means is when you go before God, when you know God, when you, see, when you realize his holiness and his love and his beauty and his sovereignty, and when you compare his glory and his righteousness and his morality with yours, you realize that you have no legal standing before him. Being poor in spirit is that. When God is, when you know God's holiness, when you realize God's greatness, when you realize God's amazing moral superiority, when you see God's light, when you, when, when you look at yours, you realize there's no standing, that you fail, that you're small, that you have no right before God. Did I tell you that example of my, of my early, like, uh, like 10 years ago? There was a church I was serving 10 years ago. And I, th- I think I told you the story. You know? Like a Korean model actress visited my church. And during the fellowship, I was observing the sisters. You know, it was like a psychological, psychological experiment. I was observing, generally those sisters are very welcoming to newcomers. Not that day. She was in this side of the room, and all the other sisters were in that side of the room. Why? Because her beauty made them feel unworthy. Even the prettiest girl in the church realized, compared to her, she's just plain Jane. No offense, Jane. That's how it works, right? That's, that's true, right? Look, I don't get jealous. I don't get envious of a lot of people. I don't, I don't care about the type of house you, house you live. I don't care about the car that you drive. I don't even care if you're better lower than me. But if you can preach better than me, I feel so small. It reveals my inadequacy. It's like that, right? Multiply that by infinity. When God is before you, if you get a glimpse of his great qualities, can you dare say 
yeah, I belong in his kingdom. I don't think you can. How do you know? The people in the Bible, how they encountered God. Isaiah, when he was in the throne room of God, you know what Isaiah said when he encountered God? He says, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm going to be destroyed. Peter, when Jesus first appeared to Peter, when Peter realized who Jesus was, did Peter say, yeah, Jesus, I'm a Jew, so you must love me because I was raised religiously. I deserve to be in your kingdom because I was raised religiously. Did Peter say that? Peter says, get away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. The sinful woman in Luke chapter 7, when, they saw, when she saw Jesus, what did she do? The only thing she could do was weep, kiss his feet, and pour perfume on his feet because she, she, knows, that she, he's, she, she knows that she's sinful. And the only thing that she can do is to ask for his mercy. These are the qualities of the people who are important in spirit. There's nothing for me to offer God. There's no reason for him to love me. There's no reason for him to be in his kingdom. There isn't. Like, the way Sunday schools, right, not our Sunday school because, you know, I don't know, but the way other Sunday schools, like, do their, teach their kids, it just annoys me. Like, one Sunday school that I used to, like, that I know of, the Sunday school teacher will say, who wants to be God's child? Raise your hand. Who wants to go to heaven? Raise your hand. And they raise their hand. And that's it. They think, oh, you're all, you're all going to go to heaven. Are you crazy, woman? It's just a matter of raising hands so you can go to the kingdom of heaven. Or Joe Austin, you know what he, how he closes every sermon? He says, I want to... Like all throughout the sermon, he talks about how God's going to make you rich. And he said, at the end of the service, I want you to pray, follow me in my prayer. He says, Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, the people follow him. I repent of my sins. I repent of my sins. I'm making my Lord. I'll make you my Lord. And Joel Osteen says, if you say that prayer with me, congratulations, you are saved. Are you crazy, man? Do we have any right to be his child? People who are poor in spirit, they know more than anyone else that there is no right. And the only way that I become a citizen of his kingdom is because Jesus Christ has become, made himself poor for me. I have no standing before God, but Jesus Christ died for me and made me righteous. And when you realize that, oh, joy unspeakable. You know what I do in my prayer time? For like 10, 15 minutes of my prayer time, I just think about, I just tell God what a, how I, the type of person that I was, I just mess everything up. And I tell him all the things that I can remember of how I messed things up. But then I said, but even though I messed things up, you're restoring, you, you forgave me, and you're restoring me, and you're using me, and it is, it is something that is unfathomable for me. 
I confess how I mess up my life, how I'm such a horrible man, and I really am a horrible man. But despite this person that I am, he forgave me, and he's restoring me, and he's doing all these great things for me. There's such joy in that. Being a poor in spirit, is, you're blessed. Because being poor in spirit, know that despite the fact that you have nothing to, that nothing to give God, he forgave you. And, 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 and he accepts you. And he approves of you. There's no joy compared to that joy in my life. There really isn't. Are you poor in spirit this morning? Do you know that you have no right to be his child? Are you conscious of the fact that you are a destroyer of things? Just like I'm a destroyer of things, you're a destroyer of things. But despite what you are, Jesus Christ made himself poor for you. And he has accepted you because of him that you are accepted as his child. Do you know that? Or do you think that you're a citizen of the kingdom of God simply because you were raised in SBC? Simply because you went to a college retreat back in the day and said yes to Jesus? Simply because you agree with whatever I say on Sunday? If your faith is anything else but the realization that Jesus Christ, that you needed saving, that Jesus Christ saved you, if your faith is built on anything else, you are not poor in spirit. You are rich in pride. The opposite of the poor in spirit is being rich in pride. What does it mean to be rich in pride? It means three major things, right? One of the evidence of, means that you're self-righteous, you're self-important, and you're self-determinant. Remember when we studied Genesis? You know, people are telling me Genesis series was great. I'm great. But remember Genesis chapter 3 when we talked about sin? What is the nucleus of sin? What is the sin underlying all sinful behavior? You know what it is? It's self-determinism. Satan tempted Adam and Eve, and Adam and Eve fell because they want to be self-determinant. They want to, be, they want to say, I want to choose what is good and right. I have the ability to make that determination. Me and me alone. I don't need God to, make, to, to let, tell me what I think is good and bad. Being pride in spirit means that self-determining attitude. God says premarital sex is damaging. It's not for his gl- glory. It's damaging to another human being. We say, no, it ain't. No, it ain't. I'm going to do it. Nope, sorry, God. That commandment, not for me. God says, worship him? No, I'm not going to do that. Self-determinism. That's what rich and pride have. Rich and pride are self-important. Not saying that you're awesome. That's, not, that's just being stupid, right? Being saying that you're awesome all the time, you're just being dumb. Self-important means my perception is what is important. What I think is right is important. That's self-importance. My opinion is important. 
I told you about this guy, right? When he first came here, oh, the Lord was doing something mighty in him. Oh, he was repenting. Oh, he was, he was, oh there was such promise. Then he left the church. And I ran into him like last year. And I said, dude, I haven't seen you forever. Where are you? He says, oh, I'm in Maryland. I go, do you go to church? He says, no, man. I, I found my own truth. I'm, gonna, I'm following my own truth. I go, what? I'm following my own truth, man. What is that? He's following what he thinks is right. Right? One of the, the you know, crazy things that people say is, my truth. That's your truth. I have my truth, and you have your truth, right? So don't impose my truth, your truth, on my truth. That's what dumb people say. Self-importance is my truth is most, most important. Self-righteous is I am right. Not only my, my opinions are important, I am right. And the other people are dead wrong. Self-righteous. I, was, I don't watch a lot of TV because, you know, what I do. But I'm, I watch TV at like, sometimes I channel surf at like midnight to like, you know, for like 10 minutes or so. And so what's on midnight? You know, like, like talk show hosts, you know, right? late night talk show hosts, like, like they're on. I was like channel surfing the other day. And you know what I realized? When did late night talk show hosts become so self-righteous? They talk about Trump a lot. That's like the number. I don't know what, what they would do if Trump gets impeached. I mean, they'd be really sad. But like they're like, the way they criticize him, it's like self-righteousness. I am right, and Trump is the evil, and he is wrong. I mean, Trump is not right, obviously. But they're so self-righteous about it. Like, they're somehow, they're like, they're like the ab- above, they're above him. And they have the right to judge him and condemn him. Self-righteousness. Self-righteousness, I think, is why the TV show Bachelor is so, so popular. So I never watch an episode because I just can't, right? But like, so like you know, I, I talked to one of the pre- people in the Bachelor Nation. That's what they call themselves, right? Bachelor Nation. And I go, why? Is it because you believe in true love? No. You know why they watch that? Same reason why they watch the Housewives of Beverly Hills or whatever. It's because when they see crazy, attractive women doing crazy things, attractive women who are better looking than them do crazy things. They feel self-righteous about it. At least I'm not like her. At least I'm not like, you know, that boozy, 50-year-old plastic surgery, like, faced woman. People love judging other people. The Bachelor, I don't know how many housewife shows are out there. That's all it's based on. Self-righteousness. And it is that way with the relationship with God, right? People who are rich in pride, number one, there are two types of people, number one, people who are rich in pride, number one, they believe the things of God is absolutely ridiculous. Right, I think, and the people, people who are listening to me at work, hi, people at work, right, I love them, right? Nothing but good, good for them. But, you know, and they, they are open to when I talk about Christianity. But when I talk about, if I talk about individual commandments of the Christian faith. They're okay with the idea of God and the perception of God. But when you talk about individual like, commandments, 
like premarital sex, for example. I think, and I may, maybe I could be wrong, people at work, but if I talk to them about this, they'll think I'm ridiculous. People who are self-righteous, self-important, self-deterministic, look at the things of the Bible and think that's ridiculous. Clearly, things of the Bible is going against social, cultural norms. People say they're more evolved, right? They're more educated than the writers of the Bible. Therefore, I know better than the writers of the Bible. And based upon my experience, what the Bible says is just ridiculous. Or there's a second group of people who are, who are rich in pride. And those people think, even though they co- totally go against God and his command, think that if there is a God, God will still accept them. It's weird. If I ask an atheist, and I've, I've asked atheists this question, hey, atheist, if there was a God, do you think you're going to go to heaven? And the atheist would say, yes. Why? Because the atheist believes he's a good person. The atheist doesn't know God's holiness. The, all the atheist knows is his warped sense of perception. Look, people are really good at expounding ideo- ideologies, but they're really bad at following through with their ideologies. I'll give you an example. So I was watching a, a YouTube clip about a particular Democratic presidential candidate. I'm not going to say which one, right, because I don't want to be, I want to be apolitical. And so this guy is a guy who expounded, the, you know, like all of them do, tax the rich. Tax them 70%, he says. And so it was a Fox News debate, and the Fox News person said, you know, we looked at your taxes, and you only pay 30%. And, so, and he says, and the questioner asks you, questioner asks, are you willing to pay 70%? And, and, and the president of Canada goes, president of Canada says, are you willing to pay 70%? But she says, yeah, but I'm not the one who says people should pay 70%. He got really mad when the interview asked him whether he's going to pay, follow through personally with his own tax plan. You see what it is? We have an idea of what we think is right, but when we actually try to enforce that, that category onto ourselves, we fail. We're all hypocrites. We can never possibly con- like, even conform to our standard ourselves. And yet somehow we're all self-righteous. People don't know God, these people. People are suffering pride. And yet they either criticize things of God because it's ridiculous, or two, somehow believe that, that they are worthy to be his child. They are not spiritually poor. And if you're spiritually prideful, if you're rich in pride, not, not poor in spirit, the thing that, even though you may think the things of God is ridiculous, if you're rich in pride and if you don't worship God, what will, always end, what will eventually happen to you is that you really become poor. I'll give you an example. So there's this writer named David Foster Wallace. He was a really famous writer who killed himself back in 2005. And one of his famous work was he, was, he did a commencement speech at a, at a college called Kenyon College. And this is what he said. He said, you know, there's no such, such thing as atheists, he says, because everyone worships something. 
And he says, you've got to be very careful about what you worship because what you worship can end up eating you alive, he says. He can, what you worship can end up destroying you. And he says, for example, he says, if you worship beauty, out of form, your sexual allure, then he says that you will always feel ugly. If you think like, your outer form is the most important, that you'll never feel pretty enough. You'll always feel ugly. Every pound that you gain, every wrinkle that you have, every hair that you lose, you will die a million deaths. If you worship money, he says, you always feel poor. You always feel that you'll never have enough. If you worship power, he says, you'll always be afraid that it's going to be taken away from you. What he's saying is people who are rich in pride, people who think they know what is best, these people end up worshiping things that are other than God. And if they worship things other than God, in the end, their spirits really do become poor, impoverished. On the other hand, the Christian who knows he is poor in spirit, he knows that the only way that he is a citizen of the kingdom of God is because of Jesus Christ, and it's because of Jesus Christ that he is accepted by God. No matter what this person has, there is joy that cannot be taken away. If you're rich in, if you're pride in, if you're rich in pride, it's going to lead you to depression and death. If you're poor in spirit, it's going to lead you to life. Look, this is like really, like the thing that I, I was listening to a sermon by Paul Washer. And this is like, and it's a great example. He says, listen, he said, for example, let's say, you know, you got up in the morning and you did your quiet time. You start the day right. You did your quiet time, right? The first thing, you didn't like, you know, like get coffee. You did your quiet time, you prayed. <gasps> Fantastic. And then when you went out, you kissed your wife, you told her you loved her. Perfect. And when you went to work, you did your work really well, and you, and you evangelized, right, for your coworkers. Perfect. And you go home at night, and you fall asleep, all feeling all good about yourself. The next day you get up, you don't do your quiet time because you overslept. Your wife annoyed you, so you kind of, like, yelled at her. Right? You, you, you stunk at work. Clients yelled at you. And you don't evangelize, right, because, you know, you know whatever. At the end of that day, you feel horrible. So if you do good... You feel great about yourself. If you do bad, you feel horrible about yourself. Paul Washer says, you're being an idolater. You're not being poor in spirit. Christian, you're being an idolater because what are you saying? You're saying your well-being, your joy is dependent upon your performance. Pastor Ujin, when, he does, when he's all diligent, God will say, he will feel, I'm not saying this is you, I'm just an example. Okay, let's say I have a friend named Mijin, right? And Mijin, when he gets up, he does quiet times. He's really diligent, and he's like, he feels great about himself. But if he doesn't do diligent, then he feels really bad about himself. And there is an element of mourning that's true, a repentance that's true. But if his performance is only, but, his, but the way he feels about himself is always dependent upon his performance, how he does things. That's not being poor in spirit. That's being rich in pride. Do you understand? Satan will tempt you to be rich in pride all the time. Satan will tempt you to say, look at yourself. Look how well you're doing. Look how poor you're doing. 
If you're doing well, God, oh, you, God accepts you. If you're doing poor, God's not going to accept you. That's Satan's game all the time. Satan is trying to make you rich in pride. Rich in pride does not say, oh, I'm the best. That's just being dumb. Rich in pride means everything's up to my standards. If I conform to my standards, I feel good. If I don't do it, then I feel bad. That's being rich in pride. You know how Satan attacks me? I do well in work, fantastic. I evangelize, fantastic. I really preach well, that's fantastic. But the way he attacks me is, are you a good parent? I'm becoming a really good husband, by the way. I'm awesome, right? But parent-wise, I fail. He looks at me and goes, because, are you, look at you. Are you parenting well? And I go, oh, and I lose joy. And he makes me stay there. All the time. Then you need to remember, I need to remember that my joy does not come from the fact that I'm a good parent. But it comes from the fact that I'm a citizen of his kingdom. And I'm a citizen of his kingdom because what Jesus Christ has done for me. Yes, I fail. I will fail. Yes, I will do that. And that's true. But that's not the basis of my acceptance, you know. I look at Christ. Oh, I look at Christ. And, his, and him being impoverished for me. Oh, the joy that I have in that. Do you have that joy? Are you poor in spirit? Or are you rich in pride? Your depression, I'm sorry to say, is telling you that you're rich in pride. Because you're thinking, looking too much upon yourself. Look at Christ. For your sake, he became poor. For my sake, he became poor. And you are accepted because of him. And God is for you because of him. You will fail miserably. You just will. I, know, I, I will give the prophecy. You will fail miserably at times. Oh, but you're still the citizen of the kingdom of God. Clearly, you will not meet his standards, and I will not meet his standards. But we're accepted because he was forsaken. What is it? I'm accepted because you were forsaken. What's the next verse? Something happened, and I'm con- you were condemned, right? What? I was accepted because you were condemned. I'm alive and well because Christ's spirit is within me. Because Jesus Christ rose and died again. Amazing love. How can this be, people? That the, the, the king of everything would die for me. Knowing that, finding that, finding joy in that makes you poor in spirit. Are you poor in spirit? If you are, it's evidenced by joy. Or are you rich in pride, which is evidenced by condemnation and shame? Which one are you? Let's pray.